So if you have a Bible, you can open it to Revelation 21. While you're doing that, I do want to make sure that everybody knows uh, the arrangements for Rick Whitley. I know that many of you will be wanting to attend, uh, and I didn't want to just include that in the with all the other announcements. So it'll be Friday at 1 p.m. There will be visitation here at the church. And then at 2 p.m. we will have service for Rick. And then he's going to be laid to rest in a private ceremony with just the family after that. But uh, all of you are invited uh, to come and, and support Karen and and her family during this time. And thank you so much for those of you who have already done a lot. Pastor Ben and I were there on... Uh, Saturday, and we, uh, church members showed up with food, they're humble people that probably don't mean to say their names, and so I won't, but showed up with food, and it was moving for Ben and I to see that, to see how quickly people spring to action to care for their sister in Christ. And it is appropriate for us tonight to talk about heaven, as we have seen one of our brothers go there just this week have absolute confidence that he is experiencing the joy of Christ, and we long for the day when all of us will be together. All of those who have gone on before us, we will all join together on the new earth and worship. And that's what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about the new earth. So Revelation 21 is where we're going to be. If there's anything that my beautiful wife loves, and she's not here so I can talk about her, it's watching a couple of strangers renovate a house in about 30 minutes on a TV show. Maybe you are like her. Many people are. In 2021, HGTV was the ninth most watched network in the country with 1.2 million committed viewers on a weekly basis. In the same year, Chip and Joanna Gaines did a deal with Warner Brothers making a cool $750 million selling their Magnolia Network content. There's nothing wrong with these shows. In fact, considering the absolute garbage that is on TV most of the time, it's pretty refreshing television in terms of moral uprightness. Most of those shows are, 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 are pretty much, uh, you know, nothing scandalous in them, nothing that you need to hide your Christian eyes from. But why do people, Christian and non-Christian, really love these shows so much? I do not, to be clear. Not really my cup of tea. But 1.2 million people are really into it. Why did Warner Brothers pay a quarter or three quarters of, of a billion dollars to have Chip and Joanna Gaines' content on their platforms? Well, I think there's something deep within us that makes us watch these shows. I've always said the reason people watch, you know, the 84 different versions of CSI that are out there is because God has put a deep a sense of justice within us, and we like to see justice executed. We don't get to see that in everyday life, so we love to watch these shows where it's happening. I think it's the same sort of thing with these HGTV and Magnolia Network shows. There is something in us that longs to see the old ripped out and the new installed. There is something in us that longs to see brokenness overhauled and to be replaced with beauty. There is something deep in our souls that cries out for restoration to take place where there is ruin. And that part of us gets some satisfaction out of seeing an old Cape Cod that is falling apart 
turned into a dream house that you would want to remain in forever. I think this is embedded into the DNA of our souls because we know deep down that these shows provide us with a picture of what is to come in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, I'm not saying everybody's making that connection because we know there are many people who are suppressing the truth and what they know about God to be true. They're suppressing it so they can continue on in unrighteousness. But as believers, I think that we can observe this and say, yeah, The human soul recognizes that this broken world will not be broken forever, and we are attracted to these shows because of that. At the heart of who we are, we are crying out for the new to come to pass. And tonight we see the reality that we long for in God's word. We see the restoration of the planet that we live on, that we move around on, that we we breathe on. And we see the people of God finally living under his rule and his reign. This passage is relieving. We've had seals and trumpets and bowls of judgment. We have had fire and smoke and we've had giant locusts. We've had the monster, Satan, the red dragon. We've had his beasts. We've had the harlot of Babylon. But finally tonight we see the old fleeing and we see the new coming. Finally, the restoration of redemption floods the pages of Scripture and we see the great reward that has been promised throughout the entirety of Revelation coming to pass for the people of God. And not just the book of Revelation, really the entire Bible has us waiting on this reward. Last time we were together, we ended with a picture of judgment and just a mention of redemption. Then death and Hades, this is Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So death and Hades, lake of fire, second death, Lake of Fire mentioned three different times in those two verses, and just one little mention there of the book of life. Well, in this passage, it's going to flip, and we're going to see a lot of talk about redemption, a lot of talk about restoration, and all things being new, with only a mention of judgment in verse 8. And so, it's time to talk about heaven. You've been waiting for it. It is here, Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be with his people, and God himself will be with them as their God." He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for 
murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We need to start tonight by looking at verse 5, because really it's the key to understanding this passage. And then I'm going to give you three observations about the age to come. In verse 5, the one seated on the throne speaks and says, Behold, which means listen up, I am making all things new. Verse 1 tells us that the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. These are the former things that belong to the former age. But now a new age is beginning, and in it, God is bringing about newness in all of creation. We have seen the one on the throne in our study of Revelation. In Revelation 4, verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, there stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. This is the God of the universe. This is the one who reigns over all things. This is the father of lights. This is the king of creation. This is the one who spoke creation into existence with the power of his speech and with the authority of his word. This is the one who rules over that which he has created. And just as what he declared to be was created in Genesis 1 and 2, what he declares to be new will be new in Revelation 21 verse 5. And with this declaration, God does what humanity has longed to do in all of its existence since the fall. We take our institutions, we take our education, we take our ingenuity, we take our political parties and our politicians, and we think we're going to make things new. We're going to make them great again, we'll build them back better, but the truth is, is that all of the collective human strength throughout all of time cannot do what God can do with his mere words. Dennis Johnson says that verse 5 shows us the comprehensive cosmic renewal that flows from the completion of God's redemption. And that is beautiful. But what does this look like in creation? What does this look like for the church, for the people of God? So let's spend our time talking about that tonight. Three observations about the making all things new. Three observations about the age that is to come. Number one, in the age to come, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. In the age to come, there will be a new heaven and there will be a new earth. Verse 1 says the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. So when did this happen in the narrative of Revelation? Well, it happened when the Lord Jesus returned. It happened when he came in judgment. God promised this in the Old Testament. Isaiah is prophesying to the people of Israel. They are in exile for their sin. They're disobedient, which, which is a uh, result of the curse of sin that had entered the world in the garden when Adam fell. Before Adam's sin, the world was perfect. There were no tears of sorrow, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. But when sin entered the world through Adam's disobedience, his sin and all the death that it brings spread to all men. And so, humanity and creation is subjected to futility. And this is a dark reality. And God's people 
are not exempt from this in the sense that they can sin and go astray. And this is what happened in the Old Testament. And so they are under discipline in a world soaked with sin. And Isaiah speaks to them in the midst of that and says this from the Lord. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. What is promised to God's people in exile through Isaiah, and Isaiah 65 is coming to pass in Revelation 21, verse 1. The New Testament is also filled with promises regarding the Lord melting down the current earth of the current age and restoring it by grace as a new creation. Peter speaks of this in his second letter, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. This is not going to happen over a period of years. This is not going to happen over a period of decades. This is something that is going to happen very quickly. The Lord will return and he will judge every soul. He will eliminate the dragon and his beasts. We saw this in chapter 20. And in an instant he's going to melt this earth down with fire with the fire of his judgment, and the old heaven and the old earth will pass away with the old age, and it will be like dross being burned from a precious metal, and all that remains will be made new unto his eternal glory. Paul depicts creation crying out for this in Romans 8, like like a woman crying out in labor pains. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly, uh, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Those who belong to the Lord, right alongside creation, inwardly grown in anticipation of the second coming and of the resurrection that Paul is talking about. And so the believers and creation are longing for all things to be made new. That's not to say, though, that there's not going to be continuity between the old earth and the new earth. The Lord is not building a totally new structure on a totally new plot of land. He is instead renovating and redeeming the old structure. And there will be a continuity between this world and the age that is to come. And our redemption, by the way, is a great case study for this. When we repent of our sin and we believe in Jesus, the Bible says we are new creations in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so that language is undeniably similar to Revelation 21. And yet, while we are putting the old man to death, and we're putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, so we would look more and more like him each day, we're being sanctified, right? We're looking less and less like our old unsaved selves, and more and more like the second Adam, Jesus. Even though that's happening, there's still continuity, right? If if you were to become a Christian tonight, if you're not a Christian, you repent of your sins, you put your faith in Jesus, you're not going to show up to work tomorrow and they're like, whoa, who are you, right? They're going to still think it's you. There's continuity there. You may not do the same things. 
people recognize us. It's still us. It's the same soul. It's just that we've been spiritually resurrected and we have become a renovation project that is under construction with the Spirit of God sanctifying us day by day, drawing us away from sin, letting our flesh starve and die in the corner like the miserable creature that it is, growing closer and closer to Jesus through his word. And it's similar when our redemption is consummated in the final resurrection, a resurrection that will be in the manner of Christ, a physical resurrection. We will get glorified bodies. We'll get imperishable bodies. And there will indeed be a big difference between the bodies that we have now and uh, those bodies made in, in the image of the first Adam, the man of dust, be a big difference between those bodies and the bodies we will have then, which are made in the manner of the second Adam, the man of heaven. This is what 1 Corinthians 15.49 says. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So there's a difference, and yet, Paul, just a few verses later, confirms there's also continuity between these bodies and the resurrected bodies. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. This perishable body, right, must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. There is continuity. The redemption of the elect is a snapshot of the redemption of creation. The resurrection of the elect is a window into what the redemption of the heavens and the earth will be like. It's still going to be this world, but it's going to be new. The imperishable will replace the perishable. The mortal will be supplanted by a world filled with life and immortality. Tom Schreiner says the old creation is purified and renewed. The old creation is not blotted out of existence. The new creation then is a renewal and transformation of the old. The first heaven and earth pass away in the sense of being transformed and cleansed of all evil. Verse 1 also tells us that the sea was no more. When you see it saying the sea is no more, don't think of like a Thomas Kincaid painting with a lighthouse, right? a very serene body of water, a couple of breakers you know, popping their head up, glorifying God with their beauty. Don't think of that. Think of what the sea tends to represent in the whole of Scripture. As you read the Bible, the ocean is chaotic. It's a source of fear. It's a source of destruction. Starting with Genesis 6 through 8, when the waters of the sea swallowed up the generation of Noah as God judged the earth in the flood. The sea produces scary creatures like the Leviathan in the book of Job and the great fish that swallowed up Jonah. And in terms of the books of apocalyptic prophecy like Daniel and like Revelation, the sea has threats to God's people and enemies of God's kingdom rising up out of it. So in Daniel 7.3, the Bible says, And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Similarly, in Revelation 13, verse 1, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. We should also remember John, the man that is writing this, is exiled to an island called Patmos. Think of like Alcatraz in a lot of ways. And he's alone. And he is imprisoned by water. The sea separates him from all of his friends. It separates him from all the churches that he has loved and pastored and ministered in. 
The sea is a divider that keeps him from the comfort and the consolation of Christian community and fellowship. In saying the sea is no more, the Lord is telling us that these awful things that the sea represents in Scripture, chaos and destruction and separation, they will have no place in the new earth. Judgment for sin will be no more. A cursed creation that is a terror to humanity will be no more. Creation will be peaceful and new. Enemies of God will be no more. Separation from Christian brothers and sisters will be no more. I don't take this literally. The, the, the book of Revelation gives us lots of pictures, right? Lots of numbers, things that we uh, are able to read and then understand the way things have been in the world, the way things are, the way things will be. And again, this is a picture for us, a symbol for us to understand that as creation is purified, as creation is redeemed, these things of like the enemies of God, separation, the curse of creation, judgment, this stuff will be no more. It will be gone. Chaos, destruction, it will be gone. But I don't think this means that there won't be bodies of water on the new earth. I think that the ocean will be purified and redeemed right along with the rest of creation, but it will never again represent danger and fear. It will only be another aspect of God's beautiful creation to the glory of his name. That's what's going to come in terms of the creation, but who's going to live on it? This is what we start to get into in verses 2 and 3. And the age to come... There will be a new creation, and the age to come, there will be a new Jerusalem. See, this holy city coming down out of heaven, John says it's named the New Jerusalem. It's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And that wedding language should draw our attention back to Revelation 19, which says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This bride, the New Jerusalem, is a city coming down from heaven that represents the people of God. And this is not new. In Revelation 11, we see the Lord's witnessing church represented as a temple and a holy city. Revelation 11 verse 2 says, But do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. In that passage, John saw the city as the temple's outer court, and it's left unmeasured. But in Revelation 21, the city is no longer unmeasured. Verse 15, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Used to be unmeasured, now it's measured. It was, in Revelation 11, trampled under the feet of her enemies. Not anymore. Here in verse 2, the city has gone from being trampled to coming down from above. It was under attack from enemies in chapter 11, but now in chapter 21, the gates are wide open day and night because there's no enemies left. There's no threats anymore. 
That's why verse 25 of Revelation 21 says, And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Jesus, the bridegroom, has fought off every single enemy of his church. Satan, persecuting governments, false teachers, the evil world, our own flesh. And with every enemy vanquished, he is ready to have his bride, his church, all to himself. The new Jerusalem, the new Zion, is a city filled with his saints. And it will be his forever. And just as Isaiah prophesied, no evil, no harm will come to her. All former threats removed. All former contentions put down. It will be a time of unparalleled peace that will last forever. Isaiah says in that same Isaiah 65 passage, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Some people wonder why Jesus would tell the Sadducees that there is no marriage in heaven. Typically, when I'm doing marriage counseling, premarital counseling, young couples have this question. What is this business about there not being marriage in heaven? We're so excited about this, and now we're already thinking about when it's not going to exist anymore. So what's up with that? And indeed, Jesus says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. The reason is that the purpose for marriage in this age will be done. Right now, relationship between husband and wife, which Paul describes in Ephesians 5, he says that the mystery is profound and that this refers to the church and Jesus. That marriage now, it's like a signpost in the ground. And that when you see a husband and wife biblically loving one another, you look at it and it's pointing beyond itself to a greater marriage that is to come. And that greater marriage is the one we're seeing here. It's the one between the lamb and the bride. And so on the new earth, there's going to be one marriage. Jesus in the new Jerusalem. And if you're worried about not being married to your spouse in heaven, trust me, this marriage is going to satisfy you and your spouse. You're not going to be upset about it. It's going to be awesome. In verse 3, a loud uh, voice comes from the throne and says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And what you have here is a restoration of God's original design in the garden. The Lord God longed to walk with Adam in the cool of the garden. But Adam broke covenant with him. When God walked in the garden, Adam hid from him. And there was separation between God and man because of sin and impending judgment. In fact, even the sound of God coming through the garden was a sound of judgment for sinful Adam. And yet, by his grace, God still dwells with his people throughout the narrative of Scripture. In the Old Testament, you see him dwelling with them in the tabernacle. In Exodus 40, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Then in the days of Solomon, we see the Lord dwelling with his people in the temple. 
1 Kings 8, 10 and 11 says, When the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. But kind of like our marriages, the temple and the tabernacle, they were not the point in and of themselves. In fact, this is where a lot of Jewish people went wrong. In Acts 6 and 7, when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, stands before the Sanhedrin and he gives his speech, big part of what he's telling them is you miss the point of the tabernacle and the temple. They miss the fact that these structures were pointing beyond themselves to a better covenant to come. The covenant Jeremiah prophesies about in Jeremiah 31 when he says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Adam's failing brings sin into the world, it creates distance between God and man, but in the new covenant, God promises that that distance is going to be closed. And he did this by giving us a new Adam, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sent him to dwell with us, to tabernacle with us. John 1 verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The first Adam was in a covenant with God. You don't eat of this tree, and you can enter into rest with me forever. He broke that covenant, he fell away from God. We've been feeling the pain of it ever since. But the second Adam enters into the same covenant with God, and yet the second Adam, he does not break the covenant. He is faithful in every moment from the womb all the way to the tomb, completely righteous. And as our great high priest, he sacrifices life on the altar of Calvary to atone for our sin and to end the separation between God and man. And when he rose from the grave, it proved that all this was true. It proved that his sin, or his, uh, his, his death for sin, would forgive our iniquity. His resurrection, resurrection from the grave proved that he holds the power over death, that he can provide eternal life for anyone who would agree with him that their sin is evil and turn from it and trust in him. The victorious high priest, the second Adam, can and will keep us in the presence of God forever. And that's what we're seeing in Revelation 21. The victorious bridegroom has won the day for his bride. By his blood and by the life that he provides her, his people will dwell in his presence forever. And because he is great in mercy and he is abundant in love, God will dwell with them forever. It's Jeremiah's new covenant promise being fulfilled fully and finally in the descent of the holy city born from above. So a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem. And now if we look at verse 4 in the last few verses of the passage, for our final observation, we see that in the age to come, there will be new life. There will be new life. To see the promises of heaven in this passage, we go to verses 6 and 7 to start. The Lord speaks to John. He says that he will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And that he will be a God and Father to the one who conquers. The water of life without payment is a reference to eternal life. It is salvation that satisfies our thirsty souls, our hungering souls. 
souls that have been hungering and thirsting for righteousness during the former age, as the Beatitudes talk about, they will be satisfied forever with this living water. The Old Testament prophets promised that life eternal would belong to our souls forever. In Joel 3.18, Joel says, And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. In Zechariah 14.8, Zechariah says, On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. There's not going to be any more time of harvest. It's just going to be full satisfaction all the time. Jesus promised of it as he spoke to the Samaritan woman in John 4. She's like, hey, can you give me a drink of water from this well? He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He's talking about eternal life. This is promised to the one who conquers. They'll have a heritage, an inheritance with the Lord. They'll be his child in his household forever. They will be an overcomer. It's a call back to the promises made to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. The Ephesians were told that the one who conquers would eat from the tree of life. The church in Smyrna was told that the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death, which is important considering what we're about to see in verse 8. The church in Pergamum is told that they will eat the hidden manna, the idea being that they get the food of the Lord's wedding supper. They'll have a white stone with a new name written on it, representative of the victory that they will have in their bridegroom, in the Lamb. The Thyatirans are told that the one who conquers will rule the nations with a rod of iron right alongside Jesus Christ, the way that he has promised to do in Psalm 2 and in Psalm 110. The church in Sardis learns that the conquerors will be clothed in white and they will have their name in the book of life. The Philadelphians hear that the one who conquers will be a pillar in the, ter- in the uh, temple of God, meaning that they will never, ever leave God's presence. They will be established in his presence forever. And the Laodiceans, even the Laodiceans, are told that the one who conquers will sit with Christ on his throne. This is the inheritance that is promised to overcomers. This is the inheritance promised to the sons of God. A son in a household receives his father's inheritance. And as the sons of God by faith, we shall all receive the eternal inheritance promised to the church in Revelation 2 and in Revelation 3. But the challenge that I want to lay out here is that we should not think, as great as all this is about heaven, we should not think that we will be counted as the thirsty who drink the water of life or that we should be counted as conquerors in the age to come if we are not these things now. Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Is this you? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or do you hunger and thirst for sinfulness? Romans 8.37 says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. So we'll be conquerors in the age to come in the future, but Paul is saying presently in Christ we are double conquerors, more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
Are you experiencing the conquering of Christ in your life? Are you seeing that sin is being done away with? Are you seeing sanctification happen as the Lord rules and reigns? Are you dominated by sin and Satan who hates you? See, we've got to look at verse 8 because it almost feels out of place. Like I said, the end of chapter 20, it's a lot of talk about judgment and a little bit of redemption. But here in chapter 21, the first eight verses, a lot of talk about redemption, a little bit of talk about judgment. And you think, I thought we moved on from judgment. I thought everything's being made new. Why are we suddenly back at the rim of the lake of fire, peering in, seeing who is being judged there? Verse 8 says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, which is the second death. The reason that we're standing at the rim of the lake of fire here in the midst of all this talk about heaven is that it's showing us the fate of those who do not hunger and thirst now, who are not double conquerors now. This lake of fire is filled with those who are overcome by fear and who thirst for that which is detestable. It's filled with murderers who are guilty of ignorantly killing image bearers or even just wishing them dead in their hearts. Those who are overcome by their hatred and they thirst for violence. It's filled with sorcerers and the Greek word there is the modern equivalent of drug pusher or drug dealer. Meaning people that are so overcome by greed and pleasure that they would push things on others in order to make money even if they know those things are going to destroy the people they're giving them to. It's filled with idolaters who are overcome by a thirst for and a love for and a devotion to false gods. It's filled with those who thirst for lies and falsehood and are overcome with them for the sake of preserving themselves or making themselves look better. This verse is alarming because I don't know about you, but I read it and I'm like, well, I'm some of those things. And that's also what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And such were some of you. Absolutely, we find ourselves in these lists. But those who thirst for living water are those who have been washed. Those who overcome, overcome because they have been justified by the Lord Jesus Christ and they are being sanctified by His Spirit. But those who have not repented, those who have not put their faith in Christ and received Him, they they remain a slave to their sin. This profile of the unrighteous does not describe who they used to be. Describes who they are. And so the lake of fire will be filled with those who never turn to Christ and they remain in their sins. 
These are the ones who thirsted for unrighteousness and drank their fill on the earth. They filled their bellies here. They have no part in the righteous kingdom to come. They have no part in the eternal satisfaction to come. You say, well, where's their reward? They're getting it now. And the waters are the former things that are going to pass away. These are the ones who are overcome by sin on earth and slaves to it, rebels against God unto death. Therefore, they will not be overcomers, overcomers in the life that is to come. They've received their reward on earth. They have none in heaven. But for those who have received new life from Christ and endured to the end, there will be no lake of fire. In fact, all of that which they have overcome will never threaten them again. The tears shed over sin won't be shed anymore. Tears shed over grief will not be shed anymore. The pain of our perishing bodies will not be felt anymore. It's all going to be wiped away. It will be removed from sight in the age to come. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. You know, you're an overcomer. I know that some of you, you've seen sins defeated only for a couple years later to have them rear their head up and bite you again. And you're like, really? This again? I didn't think this would get me again. And you've got to come to Jesus, you've got to confess it, and you've got to start the fight over. Well, all those sins that you fight, and all those sins you've been fighting, they're going to be gone. All the deaths that we mourn, the resulting grief will no longer take up real estate in our soul. All the surgeries and the scars are going to pass away with the former things. All the diseases that we hate are going to be destroyed and no more. And your thirsty heart will be satisfied with the water of life for eternity. And your embattled soul, which is presently more than a conqueror in Christ, will stand tall with the inheritance of the kingdom in your hand and an eternity of peace in front of you. The reason we watch these HGTV shows is that God has placed eternity into the hearts of men. This deep longing in us for renovation and restoration that causes us to turn on Fixer Upper compels us to create our own projects at home and points to an acknowledgement at the core of who we are that there is a new world to come. Again, unless you are suppressing the truth about God in your conscience so you can just keep living however you want, we must admit that we have a will to live. I used to love listening to Ray Comfort share his faith with people when I was in college. And one of the things he would always say to people, and they would say, well, I don't care if I go to heaven. I would say, that's nuts, man. You've got a will to live, don't you? And you don't want to die. Everybody has this will to live. We all have this desire to see justice. And it all speaks to the fact that our souls are looking for a new heaven and a new earth free from the death and decay of this age. So understanding these things, if you're in earshot of this tonight, whether you're here, you're watching the live stream, you're listening to it on the podcast seven weeks from now, and you're thinking, I've got to be a part of this. I must be a part of the new creation. I must experience the unfiltered love of the bridegroom on the new earth forever. I must be with the people of God forever. Then it's clear what you must do. 
You must trust in the one who is the author of life from beginning to end. The one seated on the throne who says that he's making all things new says his words are trustworthy and true. Which means you can bank the weight of your whole soul on them. God's not going to fail in his promises. He has not yet. He never will. He's so trustworthy that he actually says, it's done. Before it's even happened, he says, it's done. He speaks about it in past tense. His name is Alpha and Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. This is him saying, I'm God A to Z. I'm in control from beginning to the end. My plans will not be frustrated. My purposes will not be thwarted. From the start to the finish, my promises are coming to pass. You can trust him. And so if you are thirsty, come and drink now. If you're tired of your sin, believe in Christ and his power and go to war with your flesh. Trust in the Alpha and the Omega. And praise God that the renovation is coming. Let's pray. Lord God, we either believe this Bible or we don't. Coming into this new year, I'm struck by that. If we can't trust one word in this book, it all falls apart. If you lie at any point, God, we can't trust you. If there's any part of this that we go, "Eh, I don't think that really happened. We're calling you a liar. We're calling you someone that can't be trusted. But Lord, you don't lie. There is no shadow of turning in you. And so as these promises we've read tonight in Revelation 21 jump off the page to us, they should jump off the page to us, not as flowery language written by men, but as the very words of God. Promises made by an eternal father. Lord, help us to trust them. Chase away our doubts, which lead to despair and disobedience. And give us a new, fresh trust in your word. Maybe we are guilty of doing what Paul tells us not to do in Colossians 3. Maybe we are guilty of getting our head all wrapped up in what's down here. We need to look above the horizon. We need to see Christ seated at the right hand of God. We need to set our mind on the things of heaven. And tonight, Revelation 21 has helped us to do that, Lord, but give us the faith to believe it. For some, to believe it for the first time, if they do not have a relationship with you, Lord, they need to be born again. They need new life. Life that will, as we've seen, last forever. For others, Lord, maybe in 2023, faith just got a little bit stale. Maybe we got too caught up in this world. And tonight we're reminded it's going to pass away. That this age which we worry and we wring our hearts over, it's going to be gone, wiped from memory. No more crying, no more tears, no more pain, no more mourning. Former things will pass away, and behold, you are making all things new. This is trustworthy. This is true. And so, Father, I pray that you would refresh the faith of brothers and sisters in this room to believe strongly in these promises and for that to affect every single facet of their living. That they would realize 
That while there is eternal life to come, there is also a quality of eternal life now for those who are in, in Christ. That now we have abundant life in you. That now we are overcomers. That now we are not enslaved to sin. That now we can fight sin and see victory through the power of Christ. Through the power of the Spirit. Through the truth of the Word sanctifying us. Lord, revive hearts. Revive hearts through your Word. To be more trusting. To have more faith. To be able to represent you well until the time comes when your Son returns. Or until you call us home. Thank you, God, for the promises of heaven. How could we live on earth without them? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.